Chang Epic, and you're listening to Grottle. Today, we're talking to Tainan Bambrick. Tainan Bambrick is the author of Vantage, which is selected by Sharon Olds for the 2019 American Poetry Review Honickman First Book Award, Copper Canyon Press 2019. Her chapbook, Reservoir, was selected by Ocean Vuong for the 2017 Yemisee Chapbook Prize. A graduate of the University of Arizona's MFA program, she is the winner of an Academy of American Poets University Prize, an Environmental Writing Fellowship from the Vermont Studio Arts Center, and the 2018 Booth Nonfiction Contest. Her poems and essays appear or are forthcoming in The New Yorker, The American Poetry Review, Pen, Narrative, and Elsewhere. She has received scholarships from the Suwannee Writers' Conference and the Breadloaf Writers' Conference. She is a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Well, hi, Tainem. Thank you so much for joining us on the Grotto Pot today. Hi, Rita. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to be talking to you about your amazing book, Vantage. And I'm going to go ahead and start with the most obvious question, which is, <laughs> how did this book come to be? Uh, it's such a hard question to answer. I, I guess that I started writing it without really realizing I was starting to write it when I was working in this place. I would be picking up garbage for like 10 hours a day and I would see something really alarming, like, I don't know, a half of a cow someone left at a park one time or, and, or I would hear something really sexist and scary. And as a 19 year old, I think as sort of like a coping mechanism, I would write down these things that I saw or things that I heard. And those sort of like journal entry scraps that I accumulated over those two years that I worked there became some of the poems that are in the book now. But I didn't start writing about it until, until I was in an advanced poetry workshop with Bruce Beasley, who's an amazing poet. And in his class, he had us do this exercise where you write down words that are concrete so that you can sense in some way. And put those words into a bowl and then we took each other's words and wrote a poem with them as the part of this prompt and the words that I pulled out of the bowl were garbage blue and condom <laughs> and at that point I had only been you know thinking of women's poetry in a really specific way like that I couldn't write about what my real life was actually like because nothing in it was you know whatever I had been reading about like none of the imagery I had to work with was like beautiful in the way that I thought was appropriate for the landscape of a poem. And so when I, through this prompt, I wrote the first poem in my book, Litter, which opened up the entire rest of the collection for me. And my professor actually was like, is this true? Did you actually like find, you know, a goat hoof in the road and like work with all these men on this garbage crew? And, you know, and I was like, yeah, this happened. And he was the one who told me that it was a, probably going to be a whole collection if I followed it, you know, through. So, yeah, so that's where I think that's sort of how it started. And then I worked on it as my graduate thesis in my MFA at Arizona, the University of Arizona, and finished it like pretty much as it is and then put it away for a year because I was like afraid to submit it and not sure how people would react to it. And then I submitted it. So, yeah, that's pretty much like the whole process of writing the book. I'm very curious, what were the factors that were making you afraid to submit it? 
<laughs> well, I think that in my MFA, I was so I was so interested in the projects of my peers. I was really I was there with the poet Joss Charles, and she's like, you know, she was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Her book Field was her graduate thesis. I was just like thinking about all these huge, beautiful, amazing projects that my friends were working on around me, and I wasn't sure. I just didn't have the confidence to see my collection as something that could contend with those other like brilliant projects. And I think at the same time too, I I did have like kind of a bad mentor who <laughs> told me that no one was going to believe that anyone had been that victimized. Wow. Like, okay. yeah, he said like, I feel that the speaker has sort of like an unbelievable, there's an unbelievable tone around this where the speaker is like constantly in these compromised positions. And I don't think that a general audience of readers would believe that this could have happened um, or that someone wouldn't have left the situation, which of course is like really problematic and sexist and like homophobic and all the things. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's spoken from the perspective of somebody with the privilege to not be in these situations. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was complicated. And I think that that for about a year, that sort of like, flawed guidance was in my head and that was a year I lived in Spain for a year I taught English at a high school and during that year I just sort of like let my book sit and thought about other things I didn't think about it at all and I think that was actually really good because then when I returned to it I just had so much more confidence now as a person because you know just like being a year older really helped and being further removed from the program and further removed from you know, whatever those conversations or thoughts were, it was really helpful for me to revisit it after some time. And then I think when I submitted it was the perfect time, you know, I'm really happy with like where it landed and that Sharon Olds picked it. Like that's like the dream situation. So it was meant to be that way, I think. It really is. Sharon Olds, I think, is one of just the greats of poetry. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to circle back to something that you had mentioned earlier. So it seems like there has been a certain amount of overlap between your life and the life of the speaker of this book poems. And I'm mm -hmm. curious if, if you find that people have a tendency to conflate you with the speaker a lot when you, you know, read pieces in public. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I think, I think that's something that's a really, it's a really important thing to be talking about. I was just talking to a friend recently who, and I won't give any like specific details about this, but she has this beautiful book that came out and she got it reviewed in a really major place. And the place was like, when talking about the speaker, like the author of this review was referring to the speaker as my friend's name, like as the poet, and then saying that all of the things that happened to the speaker really happened to the poet. And then as a result, because this was such a major publication for the review my friend was getting all of these emails and texts from people like asking her if she was okay and like about her personal life instead of about her book or her poems right and so I think that in when we conflate the speaker with the poet we run that risk not only of exposing really personal details about their life as like facts but we also run the risk of limiting the reception of that book and of those poems by 
allowing people to sort of like read them in that, you know, scanning for details about their personal lives instead of thinking about the craft. And I think that this happens so much more often to people coming from underrepresented identity categories. Like I, I see people in review, because I also, I'm a reviews editor um, for Pleiades, and I see people a lot of the time, I mean, we get wonderful reviews sent to Pleiades, but I do, I do see, because I'm paying so much more attention to reviews in general now, I see a lot of the time when people are writing about books written by, not to always pick on cishet white men, but, <laughs> but when we see people, when we see people writing about their books, it's so focused on craft. It's not even a question in the same way that it is when it's like a woman of color's book. Yeah. And I think that when I have my, my reviews that I've received from my book, I've been like so grateful to receive them, but I see a lot of times, like when there are conversations about my book, like I'm so happy that's happening, but I also have seen a lot of times people like recently, like talking about me and my dad, making it seem like exactly. And I know that in my book, there is like a nonfiction section that focuses on my dad. But you know, it's within my poetry collection. And so these lines are constantly being blurred. And that runs the risk of sacrificing not only my privacy, but also his. And, and but I also have had moments where, you know, I've gone to do poetry readings and people have come up to me and like, thanked me for writing about my experiences being a woman in working class situations or being like queer in rural spaces. And when when that happens, I feel kind of like, okay, I'm glad that for this this reader, it felt personal. And if that means that they had to think of the speaker as exactly me to have that result, maybe that's okay. I don't know. It's really complicated. Both pros and cons are emerging from it, right? On one hand, mm-hmm. you're reaching an audience and encouraging an audience of people who might otherwise not write poetry or not work on writing because yes. they, they don't feel like there's a space for them in the industry. And that's great. But on the other hand, I do think that you're absolutely right. We are doing the poet, novelist, the creator a kind of disservice because, of course, you put a ton of work into the craft, right? Nobody becomes an award-winning anything without putting a ton of effort into craft. And when the conversation is completely steered toward, you know, who is Tanem? What are Tanem's secrets? Yeah, the attention is steered away from all the hard work that you did. Well, here's the good news. The good news is that most of my questions that I had for you are actually craft related. So <laughs> oh, good. hopefully we're not going to be falling into that same <laughs> trap that some people fall into. So let's talk a little bit. This is something that you had also mentioned earlier that you had really started focusing on this collection after you did the writing prompt. The focus, I believe, was on concrete images. And one of the things that I was so impressed by while reading your book is that you were really able to describe very deeply disturbing images. In one of them, you talk about a man's bisected corpse. And you do this in a way that isn't lurid, right? When I think it would be very easy to over-dramatize things like blood and gore. I think a lot of people's instincts would be to go in that direction. And so I'm curious, in terms of craft, what is your strategy for describing disturbing images without that kind of sensationalism? And how do you do this in a way that avoids sensationalism, but you still, I think the poems very much impressed upon me that there was an urgent and severe situation here, right? So how do you balance those two? 
That's a really smart question, and I'm happy that you read it that way. I think a lot of people feel like the opposite of how you feel (laughs) when I like I got asked to read at this high school recently which was an amazing weird experience like I don't think I've been back into a high school since I was in high school so it was a really strange feeling but I read the poem that you're talking about Mm -hmm. litter I read that poem out loud and afterwards this girl raised her hand and she was like what am I supposed to feel right now and I felt so ashamed (laughs) and then we had this long conversation about it and she was like it's just disgusting and like I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this information and I guess that's exactly how I felt when I was in that space and so if the role of the poem is to like encapsulate the feeling of a particular experience you know then maybe that's like successful but at the same time well then what does the reader do with that that same feeling that I also had. And so, so I've had a lot of, while I was writing the book, I tried really hard to focus on my intentions and my audience. And I guess I, not that I think I have a specific audience, but, but thinking about like, there's a poem towards the end of the book that is called good men process. And there's a, a line in it where we see this bicyclist has been hit by a car and one of the men that I was working with happened to drive by right as this happened. And he was like, it was in the middle of the desert on a highway. So no one was around. Like it was a road that pretty much only we were ever on, which was why this person was probably bicycling there. It's really safe normally. And so, you know, we all came to that scene and instead of describing, like, I don't know what the point would be to describe that person's body or that event or that image. But I also felt like, you know, in a workshop, people would be like, let us see more, like what's there, you know? (laughs) And so I, in resistance to that, I wrote the line, I won't open that image. Mm. And I feel like that line, the idea of, of writing into something graphic or violent that doesn't belong to me, that didn't happen to me, you know, that's really, it's important to me that I am never exploiting a violence to the animals of that place, to the environment, to people that doesn't belong to me or that I don't see any positive result in exploring. You know, I I think that there's, it's easy to write graphically describe like roadkill, like a dead animal. But then (laughs) I think that for a while that was like cool. And, you know, I think a lot of like photographers are doing that too. And I I don't see anything, like, I think we all develop our own rules about these things, like our rules about violence and how we portray violence. And in developing my rules for this collection, one of them was that I was never going to graphically write into any sort of pain that, that wasn't my own. Actually, I gave a crap talk recently about rules about violence in writing Mm, and talked about, yeah, I talked about like a lot of people and different representations of masculinity and like point of view. And one of the things I talked about was writing about animals. And in a couple of different moments, there are moments when there's like a lot of dead animals at once that are in the poems in my book. One of them is this poem called Biological Control Process. And... Is that the title? Now I'm like forgetting. (laughs) 
Oh, biological control task. That's the title. So also in like elk's blood and several, yeah. there's a great deal of violence done all at once to animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So in elk's blood, for example, the I just think I described the elk underwater. So these elk have fallen off of a cliff because of the noise of a jet ski. So like they hear they hear the ricocheting of a jet ski and they think that the noise is coming from behind them just because of the way that sound works, which is not something I fully understand. And they all <laughs> jump off of the cliff. And so like 27 of them died at once and we saw we saw their bodies partially in the river and partially beside it on the shore. And when describing them, instead of like elaborating too much on how gross it was, I think I described them as trees stuck in bee sap. That's the bodies under the water, what they looked like. And then for the in biological control task, I'm talking about this process where the government hires people to shoot seagulls all day because they eat, you know, at-risk salmon populations that tend to pool at the bottoms of dams that they're unable to cross. So obviously the problem is the dam, not the seagulls, but the seagulls are drawn inland because of all these pooling salmon. So in my description of so one day we saw like 80 seagulls that had been shot that were in the back of this truck. And in describing them, I, I talk about their, when they were like picking up the birds and showing them to us, I talked about their shoulders or their wings pulling apart like wet book covers. Yes, that was such a stunning image. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's so nice. Well, I try to, so I try when I describe them not to like lean into the negative or like lean into the graphic or grotesque, but to also honor the consequences of what's happening to our natural world and also to to like document those processes and how we allow those things to occur so it's hard because you want to make sure or i want to make sure that these things are being said but not that they're being said in a way that's unnecessarily pulling the reader into the situation and making them the recipient of a violence they don't need to be the recipient of, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And I think that's a very thoughtful and ethical way of going about describing it. Because, so first of all, violence is in and of itself violent enough, if that makes any sense. There's no need <laughs> to to try to add more to something that's already devastating to a group of animals, a group of people. And then on top of that, we know from psychology research, right, that it is possible to traumatize, re-traumatize people who've experienced trauma when you use or focus on lurid descriptions of things. And now obviously here you're talking about animals, but I think more broadly speaking, I think there's an important point to be made here that do you want to be accidentally re-traumatizing people with your descriptions of things? So I'm appreciative of the fact that this is something that you've actually thought through and that you try to avoid in your own writing. I just want to point out another just great line from Biological Control Task. The bird seemed frozen, wrongly intact, gold eyes cranked, open neck coil tight over her slaty back. It's just such an amazing, amazing line. Let's talk a little bit about one of the big themes in the book, gender. This is not a cuddly group of men that you gathered in the (laughs) cast of characters. They are verbally and at times physically assaultive toward the speaker and toward other women. The one line that really absolutely floored me was in Ray, one of the, the first poems in the collection, which starts, the thing that all women have is mouths, he says in the work truck, that don't shut. 
I'm not a poet. I'm a fiction writer, as people who uh, listen to the podcast know. But I just I love that split. You could have easily given that whole quote all at once. But there's something about the splitting of that that he says in the work truck that don't shut. I think that just adds. It adds a sense of menace to Ray that I think wouldn't have been there if you hadn't split that quote in half. And New Hire was, of course, another one that really was physically kind of uncomfortable for me to read. And when I've heard you read it at readings, it was actually physically hard for me to listen to because of the way that these men are talking about the the women that they're working with. So, you know, I think it would be very easy to render these men in a way that doesn't turn them into, that, that turns them into villains, but you don't do this. And in fact, they come across as human beings, right? Which is to say they're flawed. At the same time, you know, the speaker, I think, is never diminished to the role of the victim. In fact, you go out of your way on several poems to talk about the ways in which he's trying to exercise agency, even in this very hyper-masculine environment. I'm just going to quote again, in rules, the speaker says, my resistance invented a third space, which challenged the rule by suggesting that rules could be manipulated without breaking. And in the nonfiction piece, Sturgeon, the speaker says that she stayed with this job as a way basically to prove things to herself. Do you mind telling me a little bit about your thought process in writing gender in this book? That was a very long question. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I was like, yes, this is so smart. (laughs) I'm like learning from you. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to think specifically of ways to answer that. And I think that maybe... I mean, when I started writing this book, I was a social justice major in my, you know, undergrad. I thought that I knew everything about social issues and I was like so smart and (laughs) I was not at all. And there was a lot of like flawed initial thinking that went into everything I was doing with gender. So I think that the, you know, I spoke to a problematic mentor earlier, but I, I do think that that comment helped me in some ways because I took it and I thought about it a lot and the initial thinking wasn't productive because I was like is he right am I as a person just only focused on talking about being victimized is that something that's like inherent to who I am as a writer and thinker and I was really worried about that and then I realized that that's like actually not that's not what my poems were trying to do but that's how I was being told to think of them Mm. yeah so I guess when I was writing poems about the character Ray initially I was thinking about collecting those scraps that I had written on like napkins and receipts or whatever when I was working like the things he said to me which like Ray is not this person's real name and Ray is kind of a conflation of two people So it's like, you know, it's fictional, but it's also coming from a real place. But yeah, so I took the thing all women have is mouths that don't shut that quote that he would like always say to me in the truck whenever I would try to talk to him. I'd just be like, how's your day? You know, (laughs) he would say something How's your day well? Yeah. (laughs) He would say that to me. You know, I would think about, so I would take those things that he said and kind of organize them and think about them. And he was sort of like my entryway into like that that vein in the book of thinking about gender working class and like all of those things together and I realized as I was pulling those poems like Ray together that that there was always a moment even when I was being 
you know, like harassed or something sexist was happening, there was always something else at work. Like there was always, like in that poem, Ray, we talk, I talk about how he was in a really serious logging accident where his, his face was cut in half by a saw. So like one part of his face looked really different than the other part of his face. And he, he would always talk about how I, I would never understand what it meant to work. And he was right. Like he was absolutely right. And I think that, that, that the privilege that I was coming from also like, it was something that I could not look away from to see his idea of masculinity and how that idea of masculinity was equated for him with work and with, with worth and all these different spaces that was held against everything I was doing and saying, you know, it was in juxtaposition with like this idea he had that I, that I didn't belong there. And ultimately that's all related to a system, not necessarily to him or I it's related to like, you know, I think that there was like some affirmative action type stuff going on in the company when I got hired, but they weren't doing a very good job. Like I was the only woman for the first year that I worked there and for most of the second year. So it's just like this, this system that put people at risk without thinking about it to like meet a quota or, you know, like we would work all day in a field. Like they'd be like, go clean this disgusting field that's 10 miles from anywhere and there wouldn't even be an outhouse. So, and so I'm like in this field with not even a tree or a bush and everyone's around and I have to go to the bathroom and I'm like a woman and everyone else there can just go to the bathroom and it's not a problem. Like awkward, gross body things that no one was thinking about just built into the structure of the work. There was no space for me to have a body or to be safe, you know, and while that's problematic for me, I'm sure coming from the privileges I come from, like, it's not even as bad as it could be, you know, and yeah, so I think that, that that's something that's definitely alive in the book is that idea of isolation and how that isolation is related to social construction as like like the different like the places that we inhabit and how they're controlled by these like weird old ideas of power and who belongs in a space and who doesn't. So that's something. But I think also that the femininity of the speaker becomes a strength in multiple places. And I think that that's, yeah, towards the end of the book, Ray's wife passes away and he doesn't come back to work. And the speaker like goes to his house and finds him. And like, he's still wearing his work clothes from three days before. And it's like really sad. And then there's like that scene kind of extends into another poem called Elk Tooth Necklace. And like, I think that in those moments, the caretaking abilities and like the ability also like the speaker in the book is a poet too. And so like, there's that, that lens as well, which is, I hope that the speaker is looking at these people in a way that's always complicated. And that's always as encompassing as she's able to, <laughs> you know, like, like there's definitely that's at work too. But yeah. So I think that like towards the end, there is a community right. feeling that there isn't towards the beginning and that, has a lot to do with the men also recognizing the worth of the speaker. And that comes from like the moment when Ray's wife passes away and the speaker is physically there to, to be with him during that loss. But then also when the other character, Grayson, who finds the bicyclist that was hit, the yes. speaker's with him again in that moment. It's just like, like those, the way that 
masculinity refuses to allow for grief or for weakness or vulnerability or whatever. The speaker, just by being there, is in resistance to that idea, you know, is resisting that idea. And I think that the men ultimately realize how that's important. So it changes, I think, towards the end of the book. So I think that the focus on gender is, it's there, but it changes a lot, I hope, you know, throughout the collection. It absolutely does. And since we're talking about that poem, about the dead cyclist, a good men process, I believe, is the Mm -hmm. one. I just want to call out to our listeners this amazing line. Said reluctantly, as if it was too much to trust me with, that I was the only one small, the only one sensitive. That even in this very hyper-masculine and rigid social construction, that there is a recognition on the part of these men that there's something the speaker can do that the rest of them can't. And I think you're, you know, I mean, obviously it's your folks, so you know what you did, but this is one of the fulcrums around which their relationships change in the book. So anyway, so let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind now, about the other big theme of the book, class. I think, you know, you've mentioned already that throughout the speaker is very aware that even though she's working on the crew, that she in a way gets to stand apart from the rest of these workers because of her socioeconomic status. In What the Dam Had to Pass, uh, she says that she got the job because her dad, uh, this was my understanding that her dad pulled some strings. And on the other hand, in Elksblatt, she's also standing apart from these rich kids who are riding jet skis through and, you know, making enough noise to scare elk into accidentally jumping off a cliff and killing themselves. And I'm curious what your thoughts were when you were navigating the realities of class in this book. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a huge focus. And there's a poem, I think it's it's the second poem, Gaps, when the one character, Jim, explains to the speaker how she looks to the men around her. And I think that that is, it's a poem about gender, but it's mostly about class, I think. It's like, look at yourself, you're 19 and you're in college, and most of us are like in our 50s. This is probably the last job we'll ever have. Most of them were there because they had been construction workers or loggers and seen their work devalued to the point to where they couldn't make a good living doing it anymore, or because they had been injured and needed a job that had better insurance because, you know, they were like getting older and it's really hard to be, you know, construction work and logging is really hard. And so they, for their bodies or for whatever reason, for benefits, they turned towards working for a company that had that institutional support. And working with garbage is lucrative too. Like it's a lot of money and which isn't something that a lot of people realize. Yeah. So the, the, that's something that I always had to think about when I was there and when I was writing this too, is that because they're craft had been devalued because of this thing that their identity was really connected to had been kind of like taken from them either because of how it was being treated by society or how they were unable to like physically continue doing it whatever reason they they were going through a major loss when they got to this this job on the garbage crew they weren't there because it was their first choice or their the thing they wanted to do it was sort of like a like a last, like the best last resort maybe. And for me, like you said, I'm not 
super wealthy, but my whole family had worked for this company in different capacities. So my father, when he was in college and when he was, you know, in his like mid twenties, he was working there too, but he was more so working with fish ladders and I think construction. So he had, you know, a network of people that still worked there that he knew. And then he became a fish biologist full time. And part of his job was to say that the dam had passed its federal license requirements for protecting specifically at-risk fish populations. So in some ways, there was a delicate relationship between my dad and the people who worked at the dam, like they had to answer to him in some ways. Yeah, so he was able to call someone he knew from working there and from like his exchanges with them to let me work on this garbage crew. And so, and everyone kind of knew that because it's hard to get that job. It's like a weird, obscure job. And also it's a job that pays really well. And so people who I worked with were like, how did you get here? And it was very obvious that there was like some reason. And a lot of them thought it was like, oh, well, they've never, they don't, they needed to hire a woman because it looks bad or because they're being required to for some reason. So there was like arguments about where I came from in some ways with the hiring. Yeah. So that was definitely at work and important to address, I think, in the poems. So I wanted it to be clear that that also created another way that I was annoying or even harmful in that space. So that's something that I try to be really aware of is the complicity of being like someone with a privilege to go to college and to be seeing that job as a way to pay for it. I remember one day we were like working and I had been in a gender studies class recently and I was explaining the word heteronormativity to them. (laughs) It was like, it was like so funny. And then they like the rest of the week kept being like, that's really heteronormative to each other. And, but it was like this, like making fun of me. Like, why would she think this was important? This is such a waste of time. This is what you're like going to college for, you know? And, and (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And it's funny because it's true also. It's like, yeah, those words are really helpful and important. But then when you're in a space like that, where you're like in an urgent situation all the time, you know, like heteronormativity doesn't really, doesn't really help you to be able to say that, you know? So it was interesting in a lot of ways to think about that. Also, you know, the way that we look at land changes a lot when we have class privilege. So the same rich kids that probably scared all of those elk without knowing it also went and like took selfies next to the pile of them after they fell off the cliff. It was like a popular stop when you were boating up and down the river to go look at this amazing like thing that happened. And the name Elk Splat, the title of the poem came from like a little sign someone put next to it. They called it Elksplat, like a location. I don't know. It's interesting how, for us, it was really sad to see that many elk die at once or at all, you know. But it was also like we had to go figure out what to do with them because it was technically litter that we had to deal with. And so for us, it was sad and work. And for them, it was like, oh, I don't see myself connected to anything that might have caused this. And also it's funny and I'm going to take a picture next to it. You know, it's like so bizarre, the different reactions to the one thing and how those reactions have to do 
with class. Right. Well, it sounds like these kids are very often unaware of, I wouldn't even say complicity. I would say that they're the cause yeah. of a lot of this. <laughs> right. Complicity, I think, implies a lesser level of guilt. Yeah. In, in this case, it's their jet skis that scare the elk mm-hmm. uh, off the cliff or the mountain. Well, switching gears a little bit, who are some other up-and-coming poets that you've been reading recently and that you're feeling very excited to talk about? Ooh, this is such a good question. I just wrote a review about this book, so I don't want to talk about it, you know, too much because I feel like I'm maybe I'm overdoing it because I love this book so much. It's called Upend by Claire Mushki, and it came out in March, I think, from Noemi Press. It's gorgeous. It's like cooler than eco-poetics, cooler than documentary poetics. It's like some other world that I've never seen before. It's beautiful. It's like one of the most brilliant books I've ever read. So that book is really, I'm, it's, I'm talking about it too much on social media already, but I love that book so much. I'm also really getting into the chapbook Capable Monsters by Marlon Jenkins. And that's with Bull City Press. So that's definitely one. There's like Pokemon but there's also like a lot of really devastating, beautiful things that are in juxtaposition to this idea of Pokemon. I don't know how to even explain it. It's gorgeous. And then Horsepower by Joy Priest. I just got an advanced review copy of that book and it is so beautiful. I think it's gonna change the world, so. Thank you so much. I will be sure to look into those recommendations and I recommend that our listeners do too. So finally, would you be willing to read a few pieces for us from Vantage? Yeah, I would. Do you have any that you would like me to read? No, I mean, I think as the poet, you get to decide which are the ones that you want to share the most. Okay, I will read, I'll read three poems. I'll start with litter because we talked about it a lot. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Litter. I become a part of this garbage crew. Empty cans along the Wanapum pool. Peel condoms off rock beside fire pits. Call them snake skins. I learn quick. When there's a hoof in the road, I know to grope through the ditch for the rest of the goat. I sling bags so they won't split. My uniform juiced with intestines of liquefied king salmon. I shovel a pit bull from a plastic tub in a parking lot. He's dense and flat at the belly, a figurine. I stop dry heaving over the dead animal dumpster at headquarters, even as it vibrates with maggots, the stink generating its own heat. And as the torso of a man is fished from the river, I wade into my knees. Watching for bones, coils of skin, I try to imagine his knife bisection at the hips, the sound of a spine snapped. My litter grabber's outstretched. I'm combing for the bottom half. Then I will read Elk Splat because we talked about that a lot too. Elk Splat. The canyon the river ran through was bowl-shaped and you could see from the water, sometimes, sheep on its rim. Our boat noise would collect in one wall and spill over the ledge of the next. That must have been what happened. A jet ski, for example, cutting through the middle of the gorge can sound like a gun going off. The elk caught the ricocheting of a blared engine, thought it was a hunter, jumped for the river, and missed. 
Their 27 bodies formed a triangle of hide and bone, some parts preserved underwater, half a leg or a smashed face, like bees I've seen in tree sap. There was little we could do to move them. They accumulated trash, sunglasses, Dorito bags, disposable cameras, what people dropped photographing themselves next to the mess. Locals started calling it elk splat. We'd shovel through with litter grabbers, knocking maggots into the river, holding shirts halfway up our heads. Whoever had spooked the elk was the kind of person we liked to imagine as one rich kid. What we were better than. Fucking rich kids, slicing the reservoir in half. Who else would kill an elk and leave the antlers? How could you not think to freeze all those years of good meat? I'm going to end with a poem called Gaps. You're easy for me because I have a daughter, Jim said. But you can't forget how you look to us. Ex-construction, ex-loggers, pushing 60. You're a squirrely thing, the music you like. If you could let it be quiet on the highway, six in the morning. We're all watching the hill light cut off the wind turbines. We don't want to talk about our wives. It's true, they should let you drive. That's why I do. But who shoveled the tires out for you, painted over the torn fence? It's hard to take you seriously as a guy who's had a saw through his face, watched a razor pluck stitches off his glued eye. I'm not denying this is a shithole. It's the last one though, our careers. Think how easily you got here. I know you try, you scrape your little arms up. You're right, they should handle you. It goes both ways. None of it's you, really, just you in this place. I love that one. I think that might be one of my favorites in the class. And I think that last oh. line, just you in this place, really sums up so well of everything that we've been talking so far about, you know, how this is, these are all people in a place. They're people in a social construct and they're trying to navigate that the best that they can. Thank you. No, thank you so much, Tanem, for being willing to talk to us today. Listeners, absolutely pick up a copy of Tanem Bambrick's Vantage. It is one of the most stunning books of poems I have ever read, and I wholeheartedly recommend it. And that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is produced by Susie Gerhardt, George Higgins, Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingartner, Andrew Braithwaite, and Rita Changepe. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rita Chink Epic. 